Hello and welcome to Leftist Reading, a podcast where I'm a leftist and I read things. Today we're continuing with Women, Grace and Class by Angela Y. Davis, and we're finishing off the previous chapter, Rape, Racism and the Myth of the Black Rapist. Which, of course, means there's content warnings for this week. Much like last week, content warnings for both rape and lynching coming up very regularly through this chapter. This one in particular has more violence involved, and features actual description of some very violent acts, as well as murder. So just be warned this one gets a little bit heavier than even the previous one did. It's a long reading for today, so let's get started on it. During the first wave of great lynchings, propaganda urging the defense of white womanhood from black men's irrepressible rape instincts was conspicuous for its absence. As Frederick Douglass observed, the lawless killings of black people were most often described as preventative measure to deter the black masses from rising up in revolt. Footnote 36. At that time, the political function of mob murders was uncamouflaged. Lynching was undisguised counterinsurgency, a guarantee that black people would not be able to achieve their goals of citizenship and economic equality. Quote, During this time, Douglas pointed out, the justification for the murder of Negroes was said to be Negro conspiracies, Negro insurrections, Negro schemes to murder all the white people, Negro plots to burn the town and to commit violence generally. But never a word was said or whispered about Negro outrages upon white women and children. End quote. Footnote 37. Later, when it became evident that these conspiracies, plots, and insurrections were fabrications that never materialized, the popular justification for lynching was modified. During the period following 1872, the years of the rise of such vigilante groups as the Ku Klux Klan and the Knights of White Camellia, a new pretext was concocted. Lynchings were represented as a necessary measure to prevent black supremacy over white people. In other words, to reaffirm white supremacy. Footnote 38. After the betrayal of Reconstruction and the accompanying disfranchisement of black people, the specter of black political supremacy as a pretext for lynching became outmoded. Still, as the post-war economic structure took shape, solidifying the superexposition of black labor, the number of lynchings continued to rise. This was the historical juncture, when the cry of rape emerged as the major justification for lynching. Frederick Douglass' explanation of the political motives underlying the creation of the mythical black rapist is a brilliant analysis of the way ideology transforms to meet new historical conditions. Quote, The times have changed and the Negroes' accusers have found it necessary to change with them. They have been compelled to invent a new charge to suit the times. The old charges are no longer valid. Upon them, the good opinion of the North and of mankind cannot be secured. Honest men no longer believe that there is any ground to apprehend Negro supremacy. Times and events have swept away these old refuges of lies. They were once powerful. They did their work in their day and did it with terrible energy and effect. But they are now cast aside as useless. The lie has lost its ability to deceive. The altered circumstances have made necessary a sterner, 
stronger, and more effective justification of southern barbarism. And hence, we have, according to my theory, to look into the face of a more shocking and blasting charge than either Negro supremacy or Negro insurrection. End quote. Footnote 39. This more shocking and blasting charge, of course, was rape. Lynching was now explained and rationalized as a method to avenge black men's assaults on white southern womanhood. As one apologist for lynching insisted, it was necessary to find, quote, a way of meeting the extraordinary condition with extraordinary means. Hence, lynching in order to hold in check the Negro in the South. End quote. Footnote 40. Although the majority of lynchings did not even involve the accusation of sexual assault, the racist cry of rape became a popular explanation, which was far more effective than either of the two previous attempts to justify mob attacks on black people. In a society where male supremacy was all-pervasive, men who were motivated by their duty to defend their women could be excused of any excesses they might commit. That their motive was sublime was ample justification for the resulting barbarities. As Senator Ben Tillman of South Carolina told his Washington colleagues at the beginning of this century, quote, When stern and sad-faced white men put to death a creature in human form who has deflowered a white woman, they have avenged the greatest wrong, the blackest crime. End quote. Footnote 41. Such crimes, he said, caused civilized men to revert to the original savage type whose impulses under said circumstances have always been to kill, kill, kill. Footnote 42. The repercussions of this new myth were enormous. Not only was opposition to individual lynchings stifled, for who would dare to defend a rapist? White support for the cause of black equality in general began to wane. By the end of the 19th century, the largest mass organization of white women, the Women's Christian Temperance Union, was headed by a woman who publicly vilified black men for their alleged attacks on white women. What is more, Frances Willard went so far as to characterize black men as especially prone to alcoholism, which in turn exacerbated their instinctual urge to rape. The grog shop is the Negro's center of power. Better whiskey and more of it is the rallying cry of great, dark-faced mobs. The colored race multiplies like the locusts of Egypt. The grog shop is its center of power. The safety of women, of childhood, the home, is menaced in a thousand localities at this moment, so that men dare not go beyond the sight of their own roof tree. Footnote 43 The characterization of black men as rapists wrought incredible confusion within the ranks of progressive movements. Both Frederick Douglass and Ida B. Wells point out in their respective analyses of lynching that as soon as the propagandistic cry of rape became a legitimate excuse for lynching, former white proponents of black equality became increasingly afraid to associate themselves with black people's struggle for liberation. They either remained silent, or, like Francis Willard, they spoke out aggressively against the sexual crimes indiscriminately attributed to black men. Douglas described the catastrophic impact of the fabricated grape charge on the movement for black equality in general. Quote, it has cooled the Negro's friends. It has heated his enemies and arrested at home and abroad. 
in some measure, the generous efforts that good men were wont to make for his improvements and elevation. It has deceived his friends at the north, and many good friends at the south, for nearly all of them, in some measure, have accepted this charge against the Negro as true. End quote. Footnote 44. What was the reality behind this terribly powerful myth of the black rapist? To be sure, there were some examples of black men raping white women, but the number of actual rapes which occurred was minutely disproportionate to the allegations implied by the myth. As already indicated, during the entire Civil War, there was not a single reported case of a white woman suffering rape at the hands of a slave. While virtually all the southern white men were on the battlefront, never once was the cry of rape raised. Frederick Douglass argues that the leveling of the rape charge against black men as a whole was not credible for the simple reason that it implied a racial and instantaneous change in the mental and moral character of black people. History does not present an example of a transformation in the character of any class of men so extreme, so unnatural, and so complete as is implied in this charge. The change is too great, and the period for it too brief. Footnote 45. Even the real circumstances of most lynchings contradict the myth of the black rapist. The majority of mob murders did not even involve the charge of rape. Although the cry of rape was invoked as the popular justification for lynching in general, most lynchings took place for other reasons. In a study published in 1931 by the Southern Commission on the Study of Lynching, it was revealed that between 1889 and 1929, only one-sixth of the mob victims were actually accused of rape. 37.7% were charged with murder, 5.8% with felonious assault, 7.1% of theft, 1.8% of insulting a white person, and 24.2% were accused of miscellaneous charges, the majority of which were astoundingly trivial. According to the commission's figures, 16.7% of lynch victims were accused of rape, and 6.7% of attempted rape. Footnote 46. Although their arguments were disputed by the facts, most apologists for lynching claimed that only white men's obligation to defend their women could motivate them to commit such savage attacks on black men. In 1904, Thomas Nelson Page, writing in the North American Review, placed the entire burden of lynching on the shoulders of black men and their unchecked propensity towards sexual crimes. Quote, the crime of lynching is not likely to cease until the crime of ravishing and murdering women and children is less frequent than it has been of late. And this crime, which is well nigh wholly confined to the Negro race, will not greatly diminish until the Negroes themselves take it in hand and stamp it out. End quote. Footnote 47. And white men in the South, said Ben Tillman in the US Senate, would not submit to the Negroes gratifying his lust on our wives and daughters without lynching him. Footnote 48. In 1892, when Senator Tillman was governor of South Carolina, he had declared on the spot where eight black men had been hanged that he would personally lead a lynch mob against any black man who dared to rape a white woman. During his term as governor, he turned over a black man to a white mob even though the lynch victim had been publicly absolved by the white woman who had cried rape. Footnote 49. 
The colonization of the southern economy by capitalists from the north gave lynching its most vigorous impulse. If black people, by means of terror and violence, could remain the most brutally exploited group within the swelling ranks of the working class, the capitalists could enjoy a double advantage. Extra profits would result from the super-exploitation of black labor, and white workers' hostilities toward their employers would be diffused. White workers who assented to lynching necessarily assumed a posture of racial solidarity with the white men who were really their oppressors. This was a critical moment in the popularization of racist ideology. If black people had simply accepted a status of economic and political inferiority, the mob murders would probably have subsided. But because vast numbers of ex-slaves refused to discard their dreams of progress, more than 10,000 lynchings occurred during the three decades following the war. Footnote 50. Whoever challenged the racial hierarchy was marked a potential victim of the mob. The endless roster of the dead came to include every sort of insurgent, from the owners of successful black businesses and the workers pressing for higher wages, to those who refused to be called boy and the defiant women who resisted white men's sexual abuses. Yet, public opinion had been captured, and it was taken for granted that lynching was just a response to the barbarous sexual crimes against white womanhood. And an important question remained unasked. What about the numerous women who were lynched and sometimes raped before they were killed by the mob? Ida B. Wells refers to, quote, the horrible case of the woman in San Antonio, Texas, who had been boxed up in a barrel with nails driven through the sides and rolled down a hill until she was dead. End quote. Footnote 51. The Chicago Defender published this article on December 18, 1915, under the heading, Rape, Lynch, Negro Mother. Quote, Columbus, Miss, December 17th. Thursday, a week ago, Cordella Stevenson was found early in the morning, hanging to the limb of a tree, without any clothing. Dead. She was hung there from the night before by a bloodthirsty mob who had gone to her home, snatched her from slumber, and dragged her through the streets without any resistance. They carried her to a far-off spot, did their dirt, and then strung her up. End quote. Footnote 52. Given the central role played by the fictional black rapist in the shaping of post-slavery racism, it is, at best, irresponsible theorizing to represent black men as the most frequent authors of sexual violence. At worst, it is an aggression against black people as a whole, for the mythical rapist implies the mythical whore. Perceiving the rape charge as an attack against the entire black community, black women were quick to assume the leadership of the anti-lynching movement. Ida B. Wells Barnett was the moving force behind a crusade against lynching which was destined to span many decades. In 1892, three acquaintances of this black newspaper woman were lynched in Memphis, Tennessee. They were murdered by a racist mob because the store they opened in a black neighborhood was successfully competing with a white-owned store. Ida B. Wells hastened to speak out against this lynching in the pages of her newspaper, The Free Speech. During her trip to New York, three months later, the offices of her paper were burned to the ground. Threatened with lynching herself, she decided to remain in the East and to tell the world for the first time the true story of Negro lynchings, which were becoming more numerous and horrible. Footnote 53. 
Wells' articles in the New York Age motivated black women to organize a support campaign on her behalf, which eventually led to the establishment of black women's clubs. Footnote 54. As a result of her pioneering efforts, black women throughout the country became active in the anti-lynching crusade. Ida B. Wells herself traveled from city to city, issuing appeals to ministers, professionals, and workers alike to speak out against the outrages of lynch law. During her trips abroad, an important solidarity movement was organized in Britain, which had a marked impact on US public opinion. The extent of her success was such that she incurred the wrath of the New York Times. This vicious editorial was published after Wells' 1904 trip to England. Quote, Immediately following the day of Miss Wells' return to the United States, a Negro man assaulted a white woman in New York City for the purposes of lust and plunder. The circumstances of his fiendish crime may serve to convince the mulatrous missionary that the promulgation in New York just now of her theory of Negro outrages is, to say the least, inopportune. End quote. Footnote 55. Mary Church Terrell, the first president of the National Association of Colored Women, was another outstanding black woman leader who was devoted to the fight against lynching. In 1904, she answered Thomas Nelson Page's virulent article on the lynching of Negroes, its cause and prevention. In the North American Review, where Page's article had appeared, she published an essay entitled Lynching from a Negro's Point of View. With compelling logic, Terrell systematically refuted Page's justification of lynching as an understandable response to alleged assaults on white women. Footnote 56. Thirty years after Ida B. Wells had initiated the anti-lynching campaign, an organization called the Anti-Lynching Crusaders was founded. Established in 1922 under the auspices of the NAACP and headed by Mary Talbert, its purpose was to create an integrated women's movement against lynching. Quote, what will Mary B. Talbert do? What next will the colored American women do under her leadership? An organization has been affected by colored women to get one million women of all kinds and colors united by December 1922 against lynching. Look out, Mr. Lyncher. This class of women generally get what they go after. End quote. Footnote 57. This was not the first time black women had reached out to their white sisters. They were struggling in the tradition of such historical giants as Sojourner Truth and Frances E. W. Harper. Ida B. Wells had personally appealed to white women, as had her contemporary, Mary Church Terrell. And black club women had collectively attempted to persuade the white women's club movement to direct some of their energies toward the anti-lynching campaign. White women did not respond to these appeals en masse until the Association of Southern Women for the Prevention of Lynching was founded in 1930 under the leadership of Jesse Daniel Ames. Footnote 58. The association set out to repudiate the claim that lynching was necessary for the protection of Southern womanhood. Quote, the program of the Southern women has been directed to exposing the falsity of the claim that lynching is necessary to their protection, and to emphasize the real danger of lynching to all the values of home and religion. End quote. Footnote 59. The small group of women who attended the Atlanta meeting where the association was formed discussed the role of white women in the lynchings of the recent period. Women were usually present at the mob gatherings, they pointed out, 
and in some instances, were active members of the lynch mobs. Moreover, those white women who permitted their children to witness the murders of black people were indoctrinating them into the racist ways of the South. Walter White's study of lynching, published the year before the women's meeting, argued that one of the worst consequences of these mob murders was the warping of southern white children's minds. When White traveled to Florida to investigate a lynching, a little girl of 9 or 10 told him about, quote, the fun we had burning the N-words, end quote, footnote 60. Jesse Daniel Ames and her co-founders of the Association of Southern Women for the Prevention of Lynching resolved in 1930 to recruit the masses of Southern white women into the campaign to defeat the racist mobs bent on killing black people. Eventually, they obtained over 40,000 signatures to the association's pledge. Quote, We declare lynching is an indefensible crime, destructive of all principles of government, hateful and hostile, to every ideal of religion and humanity, debasing and degrading to every person involved. Public opinion has accepted too easily the claim of lynchers and mobsters that they were acting solely in defense of womanhood. In light of facts, we dare no longer to permit this claim to pass unchallenged, nor allow those bent upon personal revenge and savagery to commit acts of violence and lawlessness in the name of women. We solemnly pledge ourselves to create a new public opinion in the South, which will not condone, for any reason whatsoever, acts of mobs or lynchers. We will teach our children at home, at school, and at church, a new interpretation of law and religion, we will assist all officials to uphold their oath of office. And finally, we will join with every minister, editor, school teacher, and patriotic citizen in a program of education to eradicate lynchings and mobs forever from our land. End quote. Footnote 61. These courageous white women encountered opposition, hostility, and even physical threats on their lives. Their contributions were invaluable within the overall anti-lynching crusade. Without their relentless petition drives, their letter campaigns, and their meetings and demonstrations, the tide of lynching would not have been reversed so swiftly. Yet, the Association of Southern Women for the Prevention of Lynching was a movement that was 40 years late in coming. For four decades or more, black women had been leading the anti-lynching campaign, and for just about as long, they had appealed to their white sisters to join them. One of the major weaknesses of Susan Brandmiller's study on rape is its absolute disregard of black women's pioneering efforts in the anti-lynching movement. While Brandmiller rightfully praises Jesse Daniel Ames and the Association of Southern Women, she makes not so much as a passing mention of Ida B. Wells, Mary Church Terrell, or Mary Talbert, and the anti-lynching crusaders. While the Association of Southern Women for the Prevention of Lynching was a belated response to their black sisters' appeals, these women's far-reaching achievements dramatically illustrate white women's special place in the struggle against racism. When Mary Talbert and her anti-lynching crusades reached out to white women, they felt that white women could more readily identify with the black cause by virtue of their own oppression as women. Besides, lynching itself, as a terrifying tool of racism, also served to strengthen male dominance. 
quote, economic dependence, contracts with none save polite, refined, womanly pursuits, mental activities in no other field than home life. All these man-imposed restrictions have borne more heavily upon women in the South and have been maintained more rigidly than in any other part of the country. End quote. Footnote 62. Throughout the anti-lynching crusade, the critics of the racist manipulation of the rape charge did not intend to excuse those individual black men who actually committed the crime of sexual assault. As early as 1894, Frederick Douglass warned that his pronouncements against the myth of the black rapist were not to be misconstrued as a defense of rape itself. Quote, I do not pretend that Negroes are saints and angels. I do not deny that they are capable of committing the crime imputed to them, but utterly deny that they are any more addicted to the commission of that crime than is true of any other variety of the human family. I am not a defender of any man guilty of this atrocious crime, but a defender of the colored people as a class. End quote. Footnote 63. The resurgence of racism during the mid-1970s has been accompanied by a resurrection of the myth of the black rapist. Unfortunately, this myth has sometimes been legitimized by white women associated with the battle against rape. Consider, for example, Susan Brandmiller's concluding passage of the chapter of her book entitled A Question of Race. Quote, Today, the incidence of actual rape combined with the looming specter of the rapist in the mind's eye, and in particular the mythified specter of the black man as rapist, to which the black man, in the name of his manhood, now contributes, must be understood as a control mechanism against the freedom, mobility, and aspirations of all women, white and black. The crossroads of racism and sexism had to be a violent meeting place. There is no use pretending it doesn't exist. End quote. Footnote 64. Brown Miller's provocative distortion of such historical cases as the Scottsboro Nine, Willie McGee, and Emmett Till are designed to dissipate any sympathy for black men who are victims of fraudulent rape charges. As for Emmett Till, she clearly invites us to infer that if this 14-year-old boy had not been shot in the head and dumped into the Tallahatchie River after he whistled at one white woman, he would probably have succeeded in raping another white woman. Brand Miller attempts to persuade her readers that the absurd and purposefully sensational words of Eldridge Cleaver, who called rape an insurrectionary act against white society, are representative. It seems as if she wants to intentionally conjure up in her readers' imaginations armies of black men, their penises erect, charging full speed ahead toward the most conveniently placed white women. In the ranks of this army are the ghosts of Emmett Till, the rapist Eldridge Cleaver, and Imamu Baraka, who once wrote, quote, Come up, black Dada Nihilismus. Rape the white girls. Rape their fathers. Cut the mother's throats. End quote. But Bran Miller goes further. Not only does she include men like Calvin Harrington, whose book is unequivocally sexist, but also, among others, George Jackson, who never attempted to justify rape. Eldridge Cleaver's ideas, she argues, quote, reflect a strain of thinking among black male intellectuals and writers that became quite fashionable in the late 1960s and was taken on with astonishing enthusiasm by white male radicals and parts of the white intellectual establishment as a perfectly acceptable excuse of rape committed by black men. End quote. Footnote 65. 
Susan Branmillay's discussion on rape and race evinces an unthinking partnership which borders on racism. In pretending to defend the cause of all women, she sometimes boxes herself into the position of defending the particular cause of white women, regardless of its implications. Her examination of the Scottsboro 9 case is a revealing example. As Brian Miller herself points out, these nine young men, charged and convicted of rape, spent long years of their lives in prison because two white women perjured themselves on the witness stand. Yet, she has nothing but contempt for the black men and their defense movement, and her sympathy for the two white women is glaring. Quote, the left fought hard for its symbols of racial injustice, making bewildered heroes out of a handful of pathetic, semi-literate fellows caught in the jaws of southern jurisprudence, who only wanted to beat the rap. End quote. Footnote 66. On the other hand, the two white women whose false testimony sent the Scottsboro Nine to prison were, quote, corralled by a posse of white men who already believed a rape had taken place. Confused and fearful, they fell into line. End quote. Footnote 67. No one can deny that the women were manipulated by Alabama racists. However, it is wrong to portray the women as innocent pawns, absolved of the responsibility of having collaborated with the forces of racism. In choosing to take sides with white women, regardless of the circumstances, Brand Miller herself capitulates to racism. Her failure to alert white women about the urgency of combining a fierce challenge to racism with the necessary battle against sexism is an important plus for the forces of racism today. The myth of the black rapist continues to carry out the insidious work of racist ideology. It must bear a good portion of the responsibility for the failure of most anti-rape theorists to seek the identity of the enormous numbers of anonymous rapists who remain unreported, untried, and unconvicted. As long as their analyses focus on accused rapists who are reported and arrested, thus on only a fraction of the rapes actually committed, black men and other men of color will inevitably be viewed as the villains responsible for the current epidemic of sexual violence. The anonymity surrounding the vast majority of rapes is consequently treated as a statistical detail, or else as a mystery whose meaning is inaccessible. But why are there so many anonymous rapists in the first place? Might not this anonymity be a privilege enjoyed by men whose status protects them from prosecution? Although white men who are employers, executives, politicians, doctors, professors, etc. have been known to take advantage of women they consider their social inferiors, their sexual misdeeds seldom come to light in court. Is it not therefore quite probable that these men of the capitalist and middle classes account for a significant proportion of the unreported rapes? Many of these unreported rapes undoubtedly involve black women as victims. Their historical experience proves that racist ideology implies an open invitation to rape, as the basis of the license to rape black women during slavery was the slaveholders' economic power. So the class structure of capitalist society also harbors an incentive to rape. It seems, in fact, that men of the capitalist class and their middle-class partners are immune to prosecution because they commit their sexual assaults with the same unchallenged authority that legitimizes their daily assaults on the labor and dignity of working people. The existence of widespread sexual harassment on the job has never been much of a secret. It is precisely on the job, indeed, that women, especially when they are not unionized, 
are most vulnerable. Having already established their economic domination over their female subordinates, employers, managers, and foremen may attempt to assert this authority in sexual terms. That working-class women are more intensely exploited than their men adds to their vulnerability to sexual abuse, while sexual coercion simultaneously reinforces their vulnerability to economic exploitation. Working-class men, whatever their color, can be motivated to rape by the belief that their maleness accords them the privilege to dominate women. Yet since they do not possess the social or economic authority, unless it is a white man raping a woman of color, guaranteeing them immunity from prosecutions, the incentive is not nearly as powerful as it is for the men of the capitalist class. When working-class men accept the invitation to rape extended by the ideology of male supremacy, they are accepting a bribe, an illusory compensation for their powerlessness. Class structure of capitalism encourages men who wield power in the economic and political realm to become routine agents of sexual exploitation. The present rape epidemic occurs at a time when the capitalist class is furiously reasserting its authority in face of global and internal challenges. Both racism and sexism, central to its domestic strategy of increased economic exploitation, are receiving unprecedented encouragement. It is not a mere coincidence that as the incidence of rape has arisen, the position of women workers has visibly worsened. So severe are women's economic losses that their wages in relationship to men are lower than they were a decade ago. The proliferation of sexual violence is the brutal face of a generalized intensification of the sexism which necessarily accompanies this economic assault. Following a pattern established by racism, the attack on women mirrors the deteriorating situation of workers of color and the rising influence of racism in the judicial system, the educational institutions, and in the government's posture of studied neglect towards black people and other people of color. The most dramatic sign of the dangerous resurgence of racism is the new visibility of the Ku Klux Klan and the related epidemic of violent assaults on blacks. Chicanos, Puerto Ricans, and Native Americans. The present rape epidemic bears an extraordinary likeness to this violence kindled by racism. Given the complexity of the social context of rape today, any attempt to treat it as an isolated phenomenon is bound to flounder. An effective strategy against rape must aim for more than the eradication of rape, or even of sexism, alone. The struggle against racism must be an ongoing theme of the anti-rape movement, which must not only defend women of color, but the many victims of the racist manipulation of the rape charge as well. The crisis dimensions of sexual violence constitute one of the facets of a deep and ongoing crisis of capitalism. As the violent face of sexism, the threat of rape will continue to exist as long as the overall oppression of women remains an essential crutch for capitalism. The anti-rape movement and its important current activities, ranging from emotional and legal aid to self-defense and educational campaigns, must be situated in a strategic context which envisages the ultimate defeat of monopoly capitalism. And that concludes our reading for this week. If you have any questions, comments, corrections, or suggestions, you can email leftistreading at gmail.com or contact the show on Twitter at Leftist Reading. You can find this show and other podcasts at abnormalmapping.com, where there's lots of other leftist podcasts about all sorts of different media. 
the intro and outro music is Decisions by Eric Medias. You can find it and more of his work on soundimage.org. But that's all for this week. Thank you for listening. Keep reading. <laughs>